Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of Wild Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Well, I think we're doing all right. We're doing all right. Uh, no guests today. Hopefully, we will have some cool people for you guys coming up soon. Um, but today, we have lots of stuff to talk about. Jasmine's going to tell us a little bit about a new top cop in the state of Kentucky. Um, and then I'm going to run through several smaller updates uh, about the unemployment system and its shutdown. We're also going to talk a little bit about Governor Bashir's additional vetoes that he's issued since the end of the session. We're going to do a COVID update, and then we have some quick hits about some candidacies across the state of Kentucky. But without any further ado, Jasmine, update us about Kentucky's policing. Okay, so we have kind of a big policing update today. A lot of things have happened in the last couple days. But the first one is that Andy Bashir appointed Colonel Philip, who I think goes by PJ Burnett, as the next KSP commissioner. Burnett is from Bell County, and he's worked for KSP for 25 years. And this name might be familiar because he's already been serving as the interim commissioner after Rodney Brewer resigned from his commissioner position. So you'll remember we've been talking about over the last few months that Brewer resigned after DuPont Manual student journalists uncovered training materials that contained Nazi symbols and quotes. Bashir said that Burnett is already working to increase recruitment and create a more diverse workforce, which is crucial to fulfilling our state's law enforcement duties. Um, I didn't really know much about Commissioner Burnett, but some of his accomplishments that were cited in the announcement were requiring implicit bias and race relations trainings, retraining the department's instructors to develop more appropriate training materials, showing a virtual training that was put on by the Holocaust Museum, providing security for the inauguration, and performing over 100 wellness checks during the flooding and ice storms. Um, that have happened over the last few months in the state. So, I don't know, to me, all of these recent things he's done really seem like a bare minimum thing that you shouldn't have to do, like the retraining the department's instructors to have appropriate training materials. Well, I'm guessing what that means is after the whole Nazi thing, (laughs) they had to redo their PowerPoints and yeah. everything. So I'm guessing that is what that means. Ja- Jasmine, I'm a little curious from your perspective, right? I-, I mean, I think one of the things we've kind of seen throughout all of 2020 and then now into 2021 is uh, police departments that, uh, you know, I think people are kind of recognizing maybe uh, have too much power or just are doing some stuff that's not great. And the the, the people that oversee them, the elected officials that oversee them, kind of struggling to, to get them under control. And, you know, you, we've seen this across the country and, and, you know, there's a big movement about police unions and everything. But, but what do you think about the way that Governor Bashir has tried to take on KSP? I mean, Rodney Brewer was was made to resign. You know, he he, he resigned, but I feel like, you know, Governor Bashir had, had a little bit behind that. Uh, but, but, you know, they've done a, like a few of these things that you're calling like the bare minimum I mean, what, what are some steps that you think he should have taken by now? Or, or what steps do you hope that Governor Bashir does in conjunction, um, you know, with, with uh, Commissioner Burnett in the next little bit that would help you to show that, you know, there is good oversight of KSP? Well, I mean, I think 
like diverse hiring is important. Burnett is a white man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one, there's that. I, I think, you know, maybe hiring a more diverse candidate. I don't know what the candidate pool looks like. I don't know what the levels of experience um, candidates have, but I think that's one thing. Um, I think other things, I would just like to hear a police officer talk to the community in a way that's not like defending all of the bad things that have happened. And like, I say that because I feel like every time an officer gives an interview, they're really defensive about all of the problems that have been going on and police brutality and killing black people. And I've just never seen one like that. I really believe wants to change things from the inside out. So I don't really know. I mean, I think this is tough, Robert, because I don't believe we should have police. So like <laughs> when you're asking me what Andy Bashir needs to do, like, I don't think any of these things work. Like if anyone follows me, I like tweet a new link and say they cannot be reformed like once a week. Yeah. So I'm so, probably not the person to ask about like a like, reform approach or a pragmatic approach to this um because i don't i don't think there's really anything that we can do yeah it's it's definitely a tough question whether you come from that perspective or you come from like a reform-minded perspective i mean one of the, i think one of the reasons why people say they can't be reformed is is just because like so many people among the rank and file get so defensive about like any sort of like are so it's so hard for them to take any criticism and that really puts, I think, people like the Chiefs in really hard spots because they have to act defensive or else they'll lose the rank and file. And yeah, these these issues just become almost impossible to, to untangle. So Yeah, and I think the reason I say that is because not too long ago, I listened to an interview with Rick Sanders, who I think is now the head of J-Town Police in Louisville, but was the KSP commissioner a few years ago. And he did like a long form podcast interview with Matt Jones and I hated it. Like it, he acknowledged that we shouldn't kill George Floyd and, you know, like <laughs> pretty like basic acknowledgement of that. But other than that, it was, it was really defensive. It didn't show me that there are police officers who like, view things differently than what we've seen time and time again and again. And so like that's someone who worked for KSP for a long time. And then now this is another person who's been with KSP for 25 years. So I just don't know if this new commissioner has any kind of new mindset for policing. I, I mean, a time will tell. Uh, I feel like his resume in terms of what he's done in the interim, like you mentioned, is the bare minimum. But I don't think that there's, you know, any super egregious things that he's done while while chief, while interim chief, that that would be like, oh, my gosh, there's a huge red flag to hire this person. But, yeah, I mean, I think the intrinsic issues that you mentioned are still present. I mean, beyond just like the underlying tension between like, should we have like what, what's the what's the proper role for, you know, safety officers in, in terms of our, uh, you know, in terms of public safety, just KSP's in 
overall problems with with transparency still remain and yeah there's just it's it's kind of a it's kind of a mess over there so yeah that's uh that's the person who's taking it over so there you go yeah so there's policing update number one number two the courier journal finally got the employee disciplinary records and investigative files that they had been requesting from lmpd so i think i just talked about this last week and then Mayor Fisher announced that they would now release those kinds of records. Um, so it's worth noting that, like, this is already part of open records law. We will follow so, the law. Can you imagine if I, what if I did a press conference and it's like, right. I, I too will follow the law. Yeah, that's basically what this was. Um, 40 years later, we're going to comply with the law. But now the Courier-Journal has those records. And from them, they learned that Sergeant Jonathan Mattingly who, of course, we haven't talked about him in a little while, um, but that was the officer who fired shots at Breonna Taylor and was also shot in the leg during that raid. Um, But he has been reprimanded for the email that he sent back in September. This was an email sent the night before the grand jury decision, and it was sent to the whole department. And he, like we just talked about, he defended their actions. He said they did the legal, moral, and ethical thing that night. He called people thugs, and he told his fellow officers to, like, go out there and be warriors. And that, you know, was a news story back in September, that email that he sent out. And he received a letter of reprimand for it on March 29th. And, you know, this is why it's important that, you know, people are able to get these records because we have met we never would have known that. <laughs> yeah, and I think it also goes to show the extent to which, like, bad behavior causes what kind of problems. Because, you know, you can say, oh, it was an internal issue and we dealt with it internally. Uh, and that may work if you're, like, the head coach of a football team. But, like, the police department, like, he sent this, like, really egregious email and then also was, like, involved in the shooting. And, you know, he got off from the grand jury. Jonathan Mattingly did not have anything happen to him with respect to the grand jury. Um, you know, he was involved in the police raid that, that ended up killing Brianna Taylor. And, uh, you know, all yeah, that he is. He was cleared, uh, you know, in their internal investigation as well. So, like, yeah, nothing so, I mean, happened for him. Yeah. All, all the, what we've learned here is that, like, basically all that ended up happening for this man was a, a letter of reprimand for an email that he wrote. Um, and even in the face of him being utterly defiant after being involved in an egregious killing. So, you know, it's uh, this isn't a very happy police update, Jasmine. It's a very, <laughs> very sad no, police update. No, yeah. it's not. I mean, I said this earlier when we were talking about most of the things we talk about are rather depressing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> OK, last piece of news is an update on appeal hearings for the other officers who killed Brianna Taylor. First one is Joshua James. His hearing has been scheduled. It's the only one to be scheduled so far, but the police merit board set it for two. They set it as like a two part hearing on non-consecutive days. So they set aside two days on June 3rd and 4th, and then a second part on June 29th or 30th. Um, Jane's attorney, Thomas Clay objected to having the hearing like spread out over the month and having it on non-consecutive days, which that is a little strange. I mean, I don't know if it's strange with police merit boards, but I would probably want it to be consecutive as well. 
Um, but these these hearings are open to the public, but right now it's currently undecided if it's going to be virtual or not. So it may be like a virtual hearing that's streamed somewhere. I think they stream them like on Facebook or they may, they're looking into like having it at like some, in like a large space. So I guess we'll find out more about that closer to June. Yeah. Um, the next one is Miles Cosgrove. His hearing has not yet been set, but a date will be determined at the board's next meeting. And then Officer Brett Hankison's will not happen until his criminal charges are resolved. But his criminal trial is currently set for August. I don't know if this trial will actually happen in August. I don't know if there will be like additional pretrial litigation that needs to happen. I know that there's like a pretty big backlog with trials right now because of COVID. And so I don't know, a lot of times trials get continued several times, but I feel like this one is going to actually happen in August just because of the attention on it. And all the investigation was actually done probably quicker than it is in most criminal cases because of the attention. Right. So I think this trial might actually happen in August. Um, and then after that, he can have his appeal on his termination heard. And, uh, and so like the, those two things are not necessarily connected. So he, even if he's found you know, not guilty in his criminal trial, um, he might still be terminated from the police department. Right. That's kind of the reason why these things are separate. Right. They don't have the same like burden of proof. So that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, it seems like it's getting a lot closer. It seems like some stuff will just will probably start happening here the beginning of next month. And, you know, we'll have like a criminal trial this summer. So, you know, that's that's coming up here pretty shortly. Mm -hmm. Well, there's our, our policing update, uh, as joyful as as always. Um, <laughs> and like I mentioned, I have I have several smaller stories that I kind of wanted to talk about. So. The first one is this unemployment shutdown. So last Thursday, Kentucky announced that it was shutting down the unemployment system for four days in order to combat what they called rampant fraud in the system. And then according to the governor, some nefarious actors gained access to about 300,000 total accounts and, and changed their banking information. The state said they didn't know, you know, on that day, last Thursday, how many of those accounts were actually active or how much money was actually lost to fraud. They just said that, you know, this is something that happened. We caught it. Uh, we don't know how bad it is yet, but we need to make some significant changes to the system in order so that we don't lose anything more. So as part of the shutdown, all claimants who are in the system currently are being required to re-register with more stringent password and PIN requirements. And in addition, new PINs are going to be sent to all claimants, or I guess they already are sending all of these PINs to people via USPS. So there were several questions during the announcement of this change, which happened during one of Governor Bashir's press conferences, you know, about how this program is going to be administered and how claimants could get help or support if they had trouble getting re-enrolled. You know, there have been significant troubleshooting issues with the unemployment office since the pandemic began, and resolving them has been a really, really thorny issue for the governor. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, this is just another another piece of that. You know, the the this I, I do know that already there's been some issues and uh, with people getting not being able to log in because of their pin, uh, you know, coming in correctly or, or not coming or something, uh, and people having trouble getting the unemployment department on the phone. You know, I, I, Jasmine, we've pretty consistently referred to the unemployment issue uh, coming out of the COVID-19 crisis as a tragedy, which is to mean like a lot of things have happened. They're all bad, but it's really difficult to kind of nail it down as, as whose fault it is specifically. 
but I mean, it's clear that people aren't getting the help that they need or, or and are entitled to from the government. And the Bashir administration has really struggled with the thornier claims in the unemployment system. Uh, at the end of the day, the system wasn't really built to handle such a large number of claims and experience in the system experienced significant cuts in the Bevan administration. And recently, Governor Steve Bashir, uh, the current governor's father, expressed regret that he didn't take advantage of the opportunity the federal government provided to significantly invest into the unemployment system during his administration, which is one of the reasons why I think Kentucky has really specifically struggled in the midst of this. So, I mean, I don't know. I feel like unemployment and the un administration of the UI system really does promise to be a significant issue in the Bashir re-election. And, and it's probably the most problematic piece of his administration's response to the pandemic. But one of the things that I keep wondering is what unemployment expansion would have looked like in the second term of a Bevan administration. I can basically guarantee that there would be a lot less help, less investment in the system, and really less recognition that the UI system is a tool for dealing with the pandemic uh, and less investment in trying to get those problems fixed. I, I don't know, Jasmine, what do you think about this shutdown? Like, first of all, like, what do you think about the situation itself? And then what do you think about the reaction of the Bashir administration? Well, the situation itself, I don't I don't blame current governor Bashir for it. He's inherited a mess and... I would hate to see what it would look like with Matt Bevan as governor during the pandemic for a lot of reasons, but <laughs> unemployment would probably be pretty bad to deal with. I do take a little bit of issue with, with shutting down the system. Um, he also announced like a fraud task force to like crack down on claims and things like that. And I don't know. I do have an issue with how that could be carried out because I think the majority of the time that there's an issue, it's usually because of a, a mistake, just like a human error and not like rampant intentional fraud. So I hope that with investigating this issue, it, it doesn't turn into like prosecuting human errors by people who have already lost their job and they're just trying to get their unemployment. So I worry about, about that with the task force. And it's also just really unfortunate that they've had to shut it down because people have had enough trouble trying to get it. And now um, there are additional hoops to, to jump through to get there. And oftentimes these people are already stressed out and don't have the means to like deal with these issues easily. So I don't know. It, it's bad all around, but I much prefer Governor Bashir's response to like the unknown, like if we had Governor Matt Bevan dealing with this. Yeah, one of the main reasons I kind of think it's a tragedy is because, you know, I hear these stories all the time and they're just heartbreaking. And, and you know, I've talked to a couple of people who've been working specifically on unemployment issues about like what they're telling people. And, and it's really heartbreaking too. the people who've been trying to deal with this system. They're just kind of like, there's literally nothing I can tell you to do. Like, I know that nobody answers the phone when you call. I know it's dead air. I know that they're not going to answer your email. The And like, I, I even heard one person say that, like, the, the advice that we end up giving people is like, tweet at a reporter. Uh, and, and that's really, you know, that's really sad. But I, I keep thinking, like, what else is it that, that the governor needs to do? I mean, they have invested a lot of one-time money into trying to clean up this issue. I mean, the the contract they have with KPMG, 
I think it's KPMG. It's one of the big consulting firms. It's it's grown to like several million dollars that they've tried to just solve this one issue uh, and troubleshoot this one issue. And and it's clearly been very difficult for them to do. Uh, so, you know, it's just it's just really thorny. And it's one way that Kentucky was very ill prepared for this pandemic. Uh, and it really is. Uh, I, I really do hope people take a nuanced look at what Governor Bashir has done to UI, because I do think, you know, it's it's going to be if people don't look closely, it does look bad for him because this has been a problem basically throughout his entire administration. But, you know, as long as we think mm-hmm. back to like what what else would you like for him to have done? You know, that it's, it's yeah, I think this issue is really big fuel for Republicans and it's. It's probably like the I, I guess the most like valid yeah. on your face if you're not looking at it like from a nuanced perspective. Um, yeah. But I mean, he had been governor for a couple months yeah. when the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, the unemployment system clearly needed attention, but he didn't have time to even think about that or do that yet. Yeah. And I mean, even since the the issues have arisen, it's not like he's ignored them. He's tried to take them on head on. And I kind of wonder like from a political perspective, it probably would have benefited him to just ignore it and to just kind of say, well, you know, we're doing our best here. We're not, you know, and just not made an issue of it, not talked much about what he was doing to try to solve it, but he's really kind of made that front and center. And then when it continued to be a problem, I think that's when it really kind of took off as a political issue. So you know, uh, and I, I guess, you know, there's really, I, we've said it here. That, that's what we're going to say about unemployment. Uh, if you're on unemployment and experiencing a lot of problems, yeah, I, you know, we feel it's just, just awful out there. All right. Well, that's, that's two depressing stories in a row, Jasmine. We're moving on to the next one, uh, which is talking a little bit about a couple of additional vetoes that Governor Bashir issued last week. So Governor Bashir has vetoed SB 48 and HB 372 since the session ended. And because the legislature is out of legislative days, they have no ability to override these vetoes. So SB 48 was a bill that made significant changes to the open records law. Public officials and those close to public officials could basically have their identifying information from public databases scrubbed. Uh, They would be disappeared from those places. So putting aside what we think of the core of that idea, the way that the bill was actually worded in the governor's word, quote, was so broad to be unworkable in practice, unquote. So essentially, like the attorney general under this law could request for his office number to be redacted everywhere that the governor or that the government publishes, which would be really bad. People sometimes need to be able to call the attorney general and having that number available is something that we would like to have. And and yeah, it would be within the bounds of the law under this bill to basically take that away. Both chambers waited until after the veto period to even vote on this bill at all. So it's very rushed. And Danny Carroll, who's the sponsor of this legislation, he's been a champion for this cause for a while, but has really yet to be able to get this bill passed. So he, uh, you know, I guess he's going to have to wait until next year. But a lot of the bills that we were like, well, I guess you're going to have to wait till next year. They are starting to come to fruition. I'm thinking specifically about like the charter bill and stuff like that, where we were like, oh, well, maybe they'll get this done eventually. And they definitely got it done this year. So I think this this bill, we were able to stave it off for one year, but it probably will be back in the future. The next one is HB 372, and that's the bill for, for data center tax breaks and tax breaks for remote workers. 
We've talked about this bill a few times as it was making its way through the legislature. Other states similar to Kentucky have started offering tax breaks or other incentives to, other incentives to out-of-state folks that move here or move to their state. Uh, and this bill was amended to add that policy late in the session. So I've decided that the policy itself is pretty bad. Uh, Jason Bailey of Kentucky Policy helped me to determine that. You know, I think I, I tweeted something about what they were doing in West Virginia and he, you know, it was a nice little discussion about like targeting and how, you know, even if we want people to move to Kentucky and we may want to incentivize that, uh, it's really difficult to target that. You know, people move to Kentucky and move out of Kentucky all the time for just random necessary reasons. And it would be really difficult to get the people who wouldn't have come to Kentucky otherwise targeted for an incentive while leaving out the people who weren't already going to come here. So that would be really expensive or something that might have already happened. So yeah, I think in the end, doing something like this is a pretty bad policy. I think the better policy is spending money to make existing services, think like schools, infrastructure, public safety, etc. That's a better way to get people to move here and improve their lives of the people that are already here. So when it comes to tax breaks for data centers, also that's just kind of an odd industry to target because they take up a lot of real estate and they really don't have that many jobs attached to them compared to some other things. And the jobs at those data centers aren't always that great. So I don't really know why data centers was a thing that we were targeting in the first place, but we aren't now because the governor vetoed them. So those are the two bills that the governor did veto. He had 10 days after the end of the session to veto bills. So those are the only two that he did veto. I think that the legislature basically understood that they had a lot of stuff that they wanted to get to that the governor would sign. And they might as well spend their time after the veto period working on that stuff instead of stuff that they figured would get vetoed. But those are the two things that didn't make it through after the end of the legislative session. Yeah, I think the data center tax break bill was the one that we said we were the most on the fence about um, whether Governor Bashir would veto it. But it looks like he did. And I guess my question is, do you think that this a bill like this comes back up next year? Like, if the pandemic is over and less people are working remotely, do you think that this comes back up? That's another really interesting question, Jasmine. Uh, you know, the, the remote work phenomenon is definitely something that's here now. I think a lot of people do feel like it's here to stay, but I, I don't know. I don't know if it's here to stay or not. I, I mean, I'm going to stay working remotely till they make me go back into the office, but uh, they haven't yet. Uh, and I think, you know, I members of my family, like one of my sisters kept her job in Denver, but moved to Cincinnati uh, and was basically promised that she would be able to continue doing her job from Cincinnati. I think a lot of people, especially that work at big companies, are being offered the ability to work remotely. Um, so, yeah, I do think that the phenomenon, you know, at least on some level will still exist. But I do. I, one of the things about me, why I said I was kind of on the fence about it was because I kind of wasn't sure about the policy itself, because I think that. It kind of got to be popular right there towards the end of the legislative session. And as I've learned more and talked to people who know what they're talking about, I've really realized that it's not a good policy, uh, at least in my opinion. So I think in addition to whether or not the phenomenon continues, people getting more educated about targeting and the way in which we can kind of accomplish our goals of getting people to move here, that might also move the needle a little bit. And I think like the overall thoughts about how to get people to move here and how to target, how to get people into Kentucky uh, and, and target people who weren't going to move here already and, and entice them here is something that's going to get, I think, more attention. So, yeah, I do think it'll be back in some form or fashion because just because there's always tax breaks for things. 
and migration is always a big issue. So there you go. All right, the next thing I wanted to talk about was COVID. All right, so Jasmine, last week, 3,684 Kentuckians tested positive for COVID-19. That is the lowest amount since late July 2020. This amount is lower than last week and the week before, which is good news. But Andy Bashir was really quick to point out in his Monday press conference that the positivity rate, which is a leading indicator, has been plateaued for a while and actually ticked up slightly this week. It was at 3.2% on Tuesday. So, yeah, I guess, you know, we were uh, on... Uh, we, we talked a little bit last week about how we had all those consecutive weeks in decline. And, and this week we are, uh, you know, last week we were not in decline. And this week we are again in in decline. But that doesn't really mean too much because we're kind of in a plateau. Right? Make sense? Does make sense. It's It's crazy to hear that number as a weekly number because our daily totals used to be higher than that. So still really good news. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and also I just wanted to give a shout out, uh, the governor has like the stair stepper chart that he puts in his weekly press conferences. And since we've, a lot of the people who've been aggregating the COVID numbers have stopped doing that. I've had to like zoom in really close to like try to see the numbers. Uh, and and this week I emailed Kenneth, uh, you know, next next slide Kenneth. And he, he he sent me, he sent me the, the stair stepper chart in an email so I could zoom in on the actual image much easier to do. So shout out to Kenneth for that. Okay, so seven counties were in the red zone, which is a a few more than last week. I think last week there were like five or six, but all seven are pretty small counties. So I don't know if the total population covered by red counties is more or less than last week. I think it's actually probably less. All seven of those counties are in eastern Kentucky. It's Harlan, Wolf, Powell, Bath, Robertson, Bracken, and Lewis. And and Robertson, I feel like, probably goes into the red if like three people get COVID, because I actually think it's the smallest population county in all of Kentucky. Yeah, it's tiny. I don't, I've never been there. You ever been, ever been to Robertson County? I have not been to Robertson County, no. Yeah. All right. We should make a road trip at some point. All right. <laughs> uh, Louisville's cases ticked up last week after several weeks of decline, which also is kind of problematic and troubling. Uh, there were 635 cases in Jefferson County. That's about 5% more than last week. And then Lexington similar, similarly increased last week. They went from 220 weekly cases, which is an increase of about 8%. As of Tuesday, 405 Kentuckians were hospitalized with COVID-19. We've been in a plateau for hospitalizations for a few weeks now, so the precipitous decline that we saw is is pretty much over, I think. Uh, I would still be pretty interested in seeing an age breakdown to see if this increase, or not really this increase, this plateau, uh, this lack of decline is due to variants and younger people being hospitalized. That's something I am curious about. Kentucky is 37th among states for new cases, which is a little better than last week. Uh, and I think we have kind of seen the peak of some of new cases in some of the states that have been the most concerning for us. So like Michigan and the eastern seaboard states like New Jersey, they're still really, really high, but they're starting to come back down. But the virus appears to be spreading across the borders of those states. And we're starting to see a, a significant increase in cases in states like Minnesota and Delaware, which is, of course, next door to a lot of the states that were already having a pretty bad time before. The number of cases nationally has increased slightly, but I wouldn't really consider it a wave. Uh, According to the New York Times, the increase has been about 8% over the past two weeks. So Jasmine, if we're going with my analogy from last week, we still are holding on to the car after pulling it backwards. We have not yet (laughs) let it go or lifted the tires up. So that's, that's where we're at with that. But really the kind of the craziest story about Kentucky and COVID this week is about vaccines. 
So Kentucky's efforts to report vaccinations are, are lagging. Uh, the data on the state's website showed only about a 45% utilization of last week's vaccine allocation. Uh, on the Monday press conference, the governor said that the system was undergoing a security upgrade and was delayed by about two days. But we haven't really gotten an update or that number hasn't really gone up significantly since then. So either they really did only have 45% utilization of the vaccines last week or that problem isn't resolved. So, I mean, we may be starting to see a pretty significant uh, amount of vaccine hesitancy coming towards us. I think that that's not too far off regardless. Or, uh, you know, we're actually in much better shape than, than we appear to be right now. Um, I don't know what's going on, but the New York Times is happy to take a guess. They say that Kentucky has given out at least one vaccine shot to about 36% of our population. The overall percentage of the United States is 37% of the United States population. So we're right there at the average. But again, I'm not sure if our data is up to date or if that's real. So we're at least as good as the rest of the country. I'll put it that way. On Tuesday, Kentucky actually paused the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Jasmine, you've been following this story much? Yeah, I have. (laughs) Yeah, it's been kind of wild. So there were six people who had taken the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and and developed a blood clotting issue. And one person died, which is, that's very, doesn't get much more serious than than death. So um, that was, uh, you know, a a blood clotting issue due to the Johnson Johnson vaccine. But more than six million people have actually received uh, a vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. And all six of the people who got this issue fit a very, very similar demographic profile. They were all women who are between i think the ages of like 19 and 45 it's it's like younger women are having this this issue specifically um but we don't really know what's going on so they went ahead and paused the use of the johnson and johnson vaccine we don't know how long this pause will be but for me i hope it's not very long and and i really really hope that people don't fear receiving the vaccines after this issue it seems like it's about a one in a million shot and if you're not a woman between the ages of 18 and like 50, you're, 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 you don't really have any issue whatsoever. But Jasmine, I mean, I don't know. Uh, one thing that really concerns me is we had big plans to use the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in our state's jails and prisons. Mm-hmm. And, and this just kind of opens up a whole new can of worms where it's like now we're going to now we're going to take even longer to get those you know people vaccinated who desperately need it. And you have this issue about equity that that's going to be very thorny. Because this is the only the only vaccine that has any problems whatsoever, and it's the one that we're giving you know people in prison. So uh, I don't know any thoughts about that. Yeah, they were going to use it for incarcerated people, homeless people, and for students. UK had set up a lot of appointments for students who would be like leaving campus soon to get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. I'm not the first person to say this. A million other people have said it on the internet but i think it's worth noting that like birth control has a one in one thousand chance of blood clotting yeah and this is one in a million so so there's that this is it's really bad pr for for the vaccines i think yeah it is it's really unfortunate because like you know this is something that really gets swallowed up by headlines like oh vaccines pause because of an issue but it is it's like a one in a million chance I mean, more people died in Louisville due to gun violence in a week last week than died across the world from taking the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, or even got any blood clots from Johnson and Johnson. So, you know, if you don't think that we should do anything about gun violence, 
you probably should not care about this pause in, in vaccines, too. Um, yeah, I think that, like, I want the issue to be taken seriously, especially since someone's died and it's affecting a particular demographic. But the headlines and everything, it's not great. <laughs> no, it's definitely not. It's definitely not. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that the governor did say was that, you know, we do have a lot more Moderna and Pfizer than we did yeah. before. So I think that, you know, we'll be able to backfill a lot of that. You know, I know, I mean, the thing about homeless populations and incarcerated people is, you know, the, the single shot administration makes it so much easier for, for those populations. Uh, and it makes it go a lot quicker. I mean, students fit into this as well. Incarcerated people uh, are a little, I mean, by nature are, are, are captive. Uh, so we shouldn't have too much trouble finding them like two weeks later. Uh, so that one, you know, we can probably start using some Pfizer and Moderna for that population pretty quickly. But but for students in, in homeless populations, yeah, that, that gets to be uh, a little bit of an administration issue. Um, sometimes those populations are a little bit more difficult to track uh, and, and switching to using the Moderna and Pfizer might be a little bit more difficult. But, you know, hopefully, you know, we can make do with what we have and hopefully the pause for Johnson & Johnson isn't too long. So there's your COVID update for the week. As always, get a shot when you can. Get two if you get the Moderna or the Pfizer. Wear a mask and stay distant when it's smart to do that. So there's your COVID update for this week. Robert, I feel like you left out the biggest COVID update. What is it? Andy Bashir's announcement about the restrictions. Oh, I did. I did leave that out. We need to talk about that. That's very important. <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez, Jasmine, we're really lagging this week. So, yes, uh, one of the things that the governor announced was, let me make sure I get the number right. It's two and a half million, I believe. Two and a half million people, the, the governor said, if that many people in Kentucky get vaccinated, we will start relaxing restrictions uh, on gatherings of or less than a thousand people. So, you know, stuff like small concerts, stuff like uh, what what happens? Restaurants. Re yeah. Restaurant stuff. Um, all kinds of stuff. Any weddings. Weddings. That's a good one. Yeah. All kinds of gatherings, churches, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, the governor, the government can't actually restrict churches. Uh, because of the Supreme Court's decision earlier this year. But, I mean, the guidance will be that churches can go back once we have two and a half million people vaccinated. Uh, Jasmine, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think about the way that the governor handled that? I thought that was really smart. Um, I think it I think it was really smart. I wish we still had them, though. So, you like, personally, yeah. I don't know. I guess I do think it's smart to make the decision based on vaccinated population i think that's a really good way than just like saying you know here's the date we're going to do it um so i i do agree there but personally i i like the restrictions the way they are right now <laughs> yeah I, the, the issue is when i mean you can't it, keep them in it, place it, forever yeah right? i know it it just feels a little scary and is it by first shot or completely vaccinated I think it's first shot. I think it's first shot. So okay, I wish it was fully vaccinated. I think, but it'll. I mean, it, it, once we get two and a half million people that have the first shot, that equates to like you know two million people, yeah, probably or so that have full full vaccination. Um, so that's still a very large number, and it looks like cases have kind of gone down across the country anyway. 
And, you know, I, I think that we were going to start seeing and have started to see a lot of relaxation of around a lot of these uh, restrictions. And I think putting the framework in place, you know, um, it, it gives people clarity about what's going to happen. Um, and also it entices people, it gives people a reason to get vaccinated. So some people who may think like, oh, I don't need it because, you know, I don't I don't get sick or, you know, I, I'm not around that many people or I think it's going to kill me or whatever. Um, now those people have a reason to get it. Like I want to be able to go to my friend's wedding and I want my friend to be able to have, you know, the 300 person wedding they always dreamed of having, uh, or, you know, I want to go to a small concert or I'm tired of like waiting in line to go to a restaurant or whatever. Um, now they have a reason to go get Mm -hmm. a vaccine, um, that goes beyond just like wanting to do it for your fellow man. So we, we have talked a little bit about these people in the middle, Jasmine, like there's yeah. people, there's people who are like really gung ho and are like knocking down the doors to get the vaccine, and then there's people on the other end who are like absolutely not. It's against my ideology. I'll never get a vaccine, um, and those people are going to be very, very difficult to reach. But I feel like this is a good strategy to get those people in the middle who uh, are willing to do it, but kind of might need a little bit of encouragement that goes beyond just making it available for free. So to be clear, I agree that it's smart. I'm just personally nervous because six weeks feels really soon to me. And like, I'm worried about variants and what if we need to shut back down again? Then what will people do if he just opened things back up? So it's, it's just me. I agree that it's a smart decision. Yeah. And and I think that you're definitely not alone there. Um, But yeah, I just, I think it's getting to be very difficult to maintain any kind of like restrictions that the way that they are. And, And yeah, it's just a, I mean, this has all been a very tough nut to crack in terms of a public policy issue. And, you know, Jasmine, you can always wear your mask and stay home if if you're able to. You don't have to go. You don't have to go to the concert or. To the yeah. Concert. Or I think I also it would be like I'd be more OK if. The restrictions on like capacity and stuff are lifted, but we still have a mask mandate or something. But I suspect that they'll all be gone except for for. 1000 plus events. Yeah. And the other thing too, is that these will be mandates from the government. Um, and so individual venues, individual restaurants, individual like wedding facilities or whatever, they can have their own mask. Right. If mm-hmm. they'd like to. And I mean, you can vote with your feet um, as you see fit and only go to places that, that have an enforceable mask mandate. I was down yeah. in Tennessee to see some, my in-laws kind of recently on my take Louisa to see the world tour. Uh, and, <laughs> and we, we, we went to an outdoor farmer's market and I was like very taken aback by the lax nature of people in Tennessee. So I do think that like having the governmental oversight of the mask mandate is a big deal because they tried to enforce it at the venue and it wasn't really great. And I was pretty nervous about it because I wasn't vaccinated, but I do think like with the presence of vaccines around it, it will make it a a lot better. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what's going to happen. Before we get out of here, Jasmine, I did want to talk about a couple of candidacy candidacy quick hits. Um, this week, we learned that Charles Booker has moved from considering a run to op- for office to starting an, an exploratory committee. So he's running, folks, uh, and now you can give him money. So I did see a lot of people that were pretty pumped uh, running to their wallets to start the process of giving money to Charles Booker for his run for office. So we will see what he's able to accomplish. Uh, are, are you Are you excited about this move, Jasmine? Yeah, I'm excited about this move. I think that running against Rand Paul is hard. I mean, he got like 
90% of the vote when Jim Gray went against him. It wasn't quite that bad, but yeah, it was a lot. Now, now when he was running against Jim Gray, Donald Trump was at the top of the ticket. That was 2016. Yeah. That was a, that's a year. This is a midterm. You know, it's a little different this time, I think. I mean, Rand Paul's been pretty lucky because he ran in 2010, which was, of mm-hmm. course, the big, big Tea Party wave. And and that was kind of what portended the rise of Donald Trump and really the, the real falling out of the bottom of the the Democratic Democratic support in rural areas and then was able to run for re-election when Donald Trump was on the ticket in 2016. So this, I think, will no matter who the Democrat running in this race is, I expect it to be Rand Paul's toughest race. But mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, Charles Booker is the person who presents like the best option to get Democrats excited. Um, yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. Like, I think it's a tough race, but I think Charles Booker is the best one to take it on. Jasmine, I do wonder, like we, we say he's the person who's most likely to get Democrats excited. Um, one of the things that I'm looking to see is like, how far will that take you? We haven't yeah. actually tried get Democrats excited in a long time. We've mostly been like, don't make Republicans mad. It hasn't really worked out for us. Uh, I don't know if get Democrats excited will be any better. Um, but I have a feeling we're going to get the chance to see this time. And I'm interested to see how big of a difference it makes. I think this time he is getting out there early and won't have a competitive primary like he did before. So, yeah, I think now, that, you know, goes along now, with what you were saying. This is like a good test for, you know, his messaging. That will be a very interesting thing to see if he does get a primary. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't. I wouldn't be surprised if the field cleared because they're like, this is Charles Booker's chance. I also wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, a more conservative Democrat jumped into the race. Uh, you know, people are on the run. Uh, I feel good about Charles's chances in a uh, in a primary for sure. Um, so we will we will see. We'll see what happens. Um, it's it's seems like it's underway now, though. All right, one other thing, Craig Greenberg is now running for mayor of Louisville. Uh, he joins at least Shamika Parrish-Wright and David James as Democrats running in the Democratic primary. And Oh, yeah, and Tim Finley, that's right, too. Uh, Greenberg at one point owned 21C Hotel in Louisville, and I think they also had one in Lexington, and I have one a few other places. Uh, and he recently purchased Ohio Valley Wrestling with Matt Jones, which may be a, what he's most famous for right now. Um, I, I would say the thing that Greenberg kind of has to overcome is that he definitely has a distinct like Fisher-esque vibe about him of like millionaire white guy. Uh, and I, I don't know. Uh, that's going to yeah. be, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just being real, like, you know, I don't know anything about Craig Greenberg or what he believes or, or how he fits in, in the race, but I do know that like, that's going to turn a lot of voters off right now. And, and I'm interested to see what he does to overcome that. Um, I, I think everybody running in this race, Shamika Parrish, right, David James, Tim Finley, and, and Craig Greenberg right now, they have very distinct flaws and advantages going for them. And who's able to, you know, minimize their flaws and capitalize on the things that they do strongly, um, it'll be very interesting to see. So, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, do, do you think it's possible to overcome the the millionaire white guy savior vibe that this guy's giving off? Or, or do you think that it's it, he's just doomed to fill that role? I mean, initially, it seems very much like Fisher 2.0 or something. But I think it's I think it's pretty difficult to overcome. But I also think that Fisher won re-election 
really easily when a lot of people, you know, didn't like him even then. I think there's even a growing distaste for him now, but I don't think that being like the white businessman means he can't win. Mm -hmm. It's just not what the more progressive people in Louisville want. (laughs) Yeah. That'll be a very interesting, how the race kind of evolves because I do think that that simplest lane for a person like Craig uh, Greenberg to take is to basically like run to the center, embrace people in the suburbs, embrace people in the outer suburbs of Jefferson County uh, and really get those Democrats who are a growing part of the Louisville Democratic Party to to really support his run for mayor. Uh, but I do think that that would really hamstring him when it came to like actually governing as mayor. So I I, I wonder if that's the tact he will take. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, in, in the meanwhile, like David James, you know, has a lot of experience and knows what it's like to run in, in Metro. Um, but you know, has he he was a former police officer and that's going to be mm-hmm. something that, that works, that works in some ways against him with some voters. Shamika Parrish, right? A huge protest advocate. You know, we've had her on the show several times. Uh, there's nobody more real in the race and, and there won't be anybody who uh, is closer to, you know, the people in Louisville who need the most help and, and who need uh, the most support uh, and, and who've been overlooked for the longest time, uh, but really doesn't have an experience as a political candidate or a, as an office holder. And that's really going to, be something that she has to overcome. I don't really know much about Tim Finley, but I'm sure that he also has strengths and weaknesses as well. Uh, so maybe that's his weakness that I don't know who he is. <laughs> so uh, name recognition, <laughs> name, name recognition as is an issue. Yeah. Uh, so that's going to be, I mean, that, how this race evolves and the way that they all run, there's a lot, a lot of time. Of course, there's more than a year left in this primary uh, and how it evolves and takes shape uh, is something that is yet to be written and each of the candidates have a significant opportunity um, to both make their mark as candidates and potentially as mayor. So, you know, honestly, Jasmine, I, I had kind of been dreading this race for a while. I'm kind of, in, I'm kind of interested in it now. I'm kind of interested in t- to see who's going to run for mayor and, and what they're going to be able to do with the office in the next, you know, five years or so. All right. Anything else about Louisville mayor you want to say? Nope. All right. Well, there you go. All right. Well, no guests today, like we mentioned, but Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings. You can subscribe to it at FordKY.com slash email. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.